Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Got a great panel uh, set to talk about politi- political news uh, today, and I want to get right to them. Kevin Riley, the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us as he does on Thursdays. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing well this morning. I hope you are too, Bill. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm feeling pretty good today. You know, we're all getting set for the holidays, uh, you know, New Year's and Christmas, I guess Kwanzaa for some people. It's a, a joyous time of the year, Kevin. You're over you're overlooking one of the landmark events of this holiday season and I just feel compelled to correct you, which is the University yes. of Georgia semifinal championship football game on New Year's Eve, which is the focus of an awful lot of people here in Georgia. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for correcting me. Um, your colleague, uh, uh, Tia Mitchell, who uh, covers Washington for the AJC, is with us as well today. Hi, Tia. Is it is it feeling like the holidays are upon you in Washington right now? Is the city looking festive and bright? The city is very festive, and there are beautiful trees all around, and but it's been unseasonably warm up here this week, so it's a little bit weird. But, um, yes, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas and other holidays <laughs> as you celebrate. Right, right, right. Shh, don't be talking about how warm it is. There are some Republicans up there who are going to start thinking you're promoting a climate change. So be careful about that, Tia. <laughs> um, we're also joined today uh, by Tammy Greer. She, of course, teaches political science at Clark Atlanta University. Hi, Tammy. How are you? I'm great. How are you all on this pre-holiday um, day? Are you finished with – are you done for the semester? All your grades turned in, your papers marked, everything done? Everything is done. Everything is done. Great time. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's a good feeling. I suspect that uh, Amy Steigerwald, who also joins us today, and of course you all know out there as a professor of political science at Georgia State University, but also has a role as a department head, I bet you're still kind of mired down given that additional responsibility, Amy. A little bit. We've also, we're, we're in the middle of job searches and other such things. Um, I did manage to get my grades in last night early, which that never happened. So I'm terrifically proud of myself because I, that may be the first time in like 17 years. Um, but uh, I will be fielding stuff from faculty, I'm sure, all day as they run into issues. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank all of you for uh, being with us today. Um, listeners know that I always send out a list of topics to the panels uh, the day before the show to say, here's some of the things we want to talk about, just so you're not caught off guard. And I have a pretty good list of topics for today that I sent out. But, but I'm going to jump that entire list and ask the panel to take up a story that Natalie Mendenhall just sent me that I know everybody on the panel can, can deal with. Uh, Emma Hurt of Axios Atlanta, who has become a, a, a part of our Political Rewind panel, posted a really interesting exclusive story uh, on Axios Atlanta. 
Purdue, David Purdue, rejected GOP appeals to skip the governor's race. She reports that all of the Republican members of the state Senate sent him a letter about a month ago telling him that he should not challenge Brian Kemp for uh, the nomination. Um, I'll read you just a little of Emma's uh, report. In the letter, 25 of the state Senate's 34 Republicans told Purdue he's, quote, made us proud during his time in the U.S. Senate, but asked him to join them in endorsing Kemp for re-election for the sake of preserving their chances in the November general election. And the quote from the letter is, our GOP and state must be unified behind our governor with a positive message to keep Georgia conservative and moving forward. Um, uh, Emma points out the 31 members of the Republican caucus in the state Senate had already endorsed Brian Kemp's um, uh, run for re-election anyhow. Uh, so, Kevin Riley, I, the, the fact of the matter is this is just one more uh, piece of evidence at how David Perdue's decision to enter this race has become such a disruptive force in Republican politics in Georgia. It sure has. I think the the quote the story uh, includes from him is interesting, too. And this is a direct quote from the story. He said, it was kind of funny that they thought it might, meaning that their letter would uh, affect his decision. And I think that hints at um, the relationship that Purdue has with some of the Republicans in the state, uh, which is um, not necessarily warm and fuzzy. Um, Tia, uh, to add to the uh, intrigue that Emma writes about here, uh, but this letter was very hush-hush at the time that they wrote. They, they didn't want any attention for it. But Emma points out that the, the Republicans in the Senate were so concerned about this letter uh, getting widespread attention uh, elect- electronically, they didn't even uh, – she got a copy of the letter, but what she got was a photo – of the kind of wrinkled letter with all the signatures on it. No one would send her an electronic copy for fear that that would spread like wildfire. Yeah, I find so much intrigue. This is a great scoop from Emma because it shows that the the folks that wanted David Perdue to challenge Brian Kemp came from outside of Georgia's GOP machine. So you and it wasn't just President Trump. You also saw like Mitch McConnell was talking to David Perdue and there but that concern about Kemp comes from outside of Georgia. And but at the same time those Georgia Republicans who maybe are behind Kemp or at the very least don't think a Republican primary would be good for the party still don't want to make President Trump mad. And so they were trying to privately pressure David Perdue. They were worked very hard to keep it from leaking. And um, credit to Emma, because it's really not – sometimes when you see a good scoop, you can tell where the scoop came from. I still am not sure I get where this scoop came from, which is which is the mark of a great journalist. Um because it doesn't really behoove Purdue's side, and definitely those senators who signed that letter didn't want it to leak. So, um, you know, maybe Team Kemp wanted to go ahead and say, hey, I got – even they might not say it publicly, but all these state senators, they don't want you in the race either, David Purdue. 
So, so Amy uh, uh, and Tammy, I want to add one element for this for each of you. Uh, Kevin has already mentioned the top line of what David Perdue said, you know, oh, it's funny they thought this letter might uh, dissuade me from running. But he says more than that. Remember that, of course, uh, Amy, David Perdue in 2014 ran as the outsider. I'm a businessman. I'm not a politician. And... uh, and uh, he looked down his nose in his campaign on people who were so-called professional politicians. And he's, that's exactly the line he's taking on this, Amy. He says, um, this is what career politicians do, talking about the letter. They think that endorsements among each other can elbow an outsider out of a race. People who vote don't care about that. You know who cares about that? Career politicians. Continuing that same line, despite the fact he did have six years in the United States Senate. It's an interesting race in that sense of where they come in. But I, I think the bigger point, like Tia really hit the nail nail on the head um, and sort of talking about the fact that you've got on the one hand this real concern. So it's not only that a primary is a distraction right from the general election, but it's also a primary where you've got these competing forces on some level of to what degree is the Georgia GOP tied to Trump and how much power does Trump have? And so we see that playing out in the lieutenant governor's race. We see that playing out in the secretary of state's race. And now we're seeing that really play out in the governor's race which again sort of makes us be at the forefront of this. You know, the flip side of it also is uh, part of the reason probably why those senators sent that email is not only because they didn't want to have there be what is going to be a terribly bloody and supremely personal uh, primary that is only going to get nastier, but also it is most decidedly an early Christmas gift for Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock because now they can just coast and wait to the general election. And so I don't, on on, on that sense, like they're going to spend a ton of money and beat each other up. And no matter who wins, they're not going to come out of this anywhere near as strong as they would have been if they had not done this primary. Tammy, much in the way that Raphael Warnock could sit back and watch uh, the fight in uh, uh, the Republican uh, primary or in that, in that uh, uh, election with everybody on one uh, ballot, the jungle election uh, uh, between uh, Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins. Uh, and now you've got the same thing happening here. Your thoughts, Tammy? Absolutely. And this is a way for um, those that do not vote for Republicans or identify as Republicans can pay attention to policy um, and not necessarily pay attention to um, the infighting. Um, it, it, this is very interesting as to why the Republicans, um, particularly here in Georgia, who right now have a really thin line with history within the state and then recent history with uh, the flipping of two Senate seats and um, the vote for president, as to why would you create such conflict within um, the party at this very fragile time? Um, Again, though, um, this will be... um, hopefully a a good opportunity for um, Democratic candidates and um, independent-minded folks to pay attention to policy and to see, you know, what what does an alternative look like um, outside of picking um, the personality of uh, if you are for or against the former president. 
Amy? Um, and I think the other thing, actually, that is that that is very interesting to me is that in the original November 2020 race, there were quite a lot of Biden-Purdue voters. Purdue at that point had been sort of staying out of kind of the Trump-Purdue fight. He was not at all sort of saying anything about election fraud or doing anything like that. And he was seen really as this more moderate choice. And so especially sort of in the suburban areas, we saw a lot of people who voted for Biden because they didn't want Trump, but they also voted for Purdue. And then when in the runoff, he decided that he would team up with Kelly Leffler and really team up with you know, about to be former President Trump and really sort of buy into the sort of electoral fraud and those challenges, that directly hurt him, right? He lost a lot of the votes that he'd had, either from people not turning out or whatever. And so it is interesting that the sort of lesson he took from that was to go even farther, right? He has now filed a new lawsuit uh, suggesting that the entirety of the race in Georgia should be thrown out, except, of course, you know, the one he was a part of. Um, and his prior races and things like that. And so it's sort of unclear why that's the lesson he took from it, because it really did seem to harm him in the runoff. Uh, just to uh, be a little clearer, the, the lawsuit he's filing has to do with the absentee ballot, specifically uh, in Fulton County. But, yes, he's perpetuating that same big lie. Uh, Kevin Riley. Yeah, it's become this bizarre situation where uh, Republicans, Republicans who want to run, uh, you know, in a statewide election um, have to join some society wherein they completely buy into the big lie. It, it, it's, it's like now it's become like a credential you have to have because if you don't have it, you're going to um, – have a problem with President Trump. And of course, the challenge for Governor Kemp is simple. I mean, uh, when all rhetoric or everything aside, I mean, David Perdue never had to actually make a choice, right? He's just talking. But Governor Kemp had to make a decision about whether or not to certify Georgia's election results, therefore forced to go on the record at a moment of truth. And that is going to be the the club with which David Perdue really wants to beat him. And and the lawsuit's a tangent, but it's an attention getter. Let's face reality. All right. Um, interesting story. We will certainly stay on top of this race between Kemp and Perdue moving forward uh, and, and, uh, and not miss any moment of the blow-by-blow that's certain to continue. Um, but let's move on today to another topic. Uh, Kevin, while the ball's in your court, uh, Governor Kemp today uh, hopes that he is going to uh, put a big feather in his reelection cap when down at the state capitol this afternoon, he is expected to announce that Rivian, which is the manufacturer of electric vehicles, uh, particularly electric trucks, which most people consider to be at the top of the line of electric vehicles, um, they're going to build their new plant out in Rutledge, Georgia, about an hour east of Atlanta along I-20. It's a $5 billion electric vehicle plant that could bring as many as 8,000 jobs in and eventually maybe 10,000 jobs. This is one of the biggest economic development deals ever announced in uh, a state or certainly in the last couple decades, Kevin. Yeah, it's really a huge deal. And, Bill, I guess I should 
say at this point really quickly that uh, Cox, the company that owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, is, is an investor in Rivian. So, I mean, I just want your listeners to know that, that none of that uh, affects how we cover things. But you can imagine Governor Kemp at that press conference at 4 o'clock today standing at a podium outside the Capitol with perhaps they should mount a sword of Damocles hanging over his head as he continues to lead the state. But he has this this thing that could happen with President Trump. But it's certainly going to be a big moment. The idea that Georgia is going to be a huge player in the future of electric vehicles, I mean, can can send the state to a future that is, you know, going to be the envy of many, many other states. I mean, um, as you know, I came here from Ohio, and Ohio's economy was built a lot on the automotive industry back in the day. And uh, the new automotive industry will be electric. I just want to be, let me play devil's advocate. Let me be the skeptic because Governor Kemp has made, and it is a big deal. I don't want to downplay that. It's a big deal. It's going to bring jobs, new company. Anytime a new rising company moves to a state, the governor is going to celebrate. I don't take that away from him. But he is playing this up. He has held so many press conferences about Rivian and about what he's doing, and I get why he's doing it, but I don't want I think we should be skeptical or at least make sure that we keep our eyes open. Politicians love to promise to say this is going to bring thousands of jobs and billions of economic impact. And then, you know, 10 years down the line when Governor Kemp, even if he's just turned out, not if he loses, and then perhaps um, promises made, not promises kept. So I, I I get why he's playing it up. I don't take that from him, but I don't want us to get so caught up in the celebration that we don't also understand there's like a political angle to um, why he's doing this. And it's just easy for any politician, that not just Governor Kemp, any politician often oversells the impact of economic deals. And I would just be, I guess I'm curious about what are the actual numbers? Because it's so easy to put out a press release. It's so easy to have a news conference and celebrate. But what are the numbers and what is the state giving up? What are the tax incentives that we still don't know about? That's what I would like for us to have a little bit more concrete information. Yeah, um, uh, Tia, I think we take your point. Um, an auto assembly plant is clearly going to employ an awful lot of people. You're right. We we can't. We can only assume that the number may be as high as the state suggests it is. We don't know that for a fact. But uh, Tammy, uh, I think Tia points to another uh, major question here, which is just how many incentives does the state? provide is they are they going to provide to Rivian to come here you know we we've seen uh, recently that there's more and more uh, light being shown on the economic the tax breaks the incentives that states and localities are giving to attract business and there's more questions about whether they're needed and the fact that these incentives have not been shared publicly are raising some eyebrows Tammy 
Correct. And it goes into a transparency issue. And um, is the state um, negotiating in good faith on behalf of the people inside of the state of Georgia versus for um, the company overall? Um, I also think that, you know, we should also discuss not only the economic impact, the potential, right, that we say that could happen. Let's also discuss what will happen to Rutledge. What will happen to the area surrounding Rutledge? Um, let's be clear on what's going to happen when this plant comes. Um, Rutledge is going to be gentrified, which means that a rural space is going to um, then become an urban space um, with um, the influx of people. Um, you'll have increasing traffic. Um, you'll also have increased in pricing and housing and food and services. And so the people that currently live in and around Rutledge are going to be impacted tremendously by the plant coming and may not necessarily um, have jobs or, uh, you know, in the plant or um, get the benefit of the ripple effect, such as if they own um, uh, a restaurant or something that, that could receive any uh, of those um, um, other benefits from the increase in workers. So we have to understand that um, Brian Kemp, while he may celebrate the plant coming, may have a challenging time with people who are from that community who may be Republican conservative voters and what would be the impact on them from an economic, social, and political um, aspect. Amy? No, Tammy brings up an excellent point, and I think we're actually already seeing that a bit of sort of people in the community expressing these types of concerns. And I think that that's sort of an important part that, like, it's all right. There, there are pros and cons on both of sort of what it means to to build new plants, of what that means for what's being done. As Tia pointed out, right, what is the state offering as incentives to get them to have chosen Georgia as the site as opposed to another location? And so, you know, especially given that this is part of the reelection, right, and something that obviously Governor Kemp is going to want to tout, these are the potential pitfalls that his team is going to have to be ready for and ready to answer because I think that, you know, particularly, I I mean, I, I take Tia's point very seriously that the, because we saw this after uh, when we were all fighting over the Amazon headquarters, right, that a lot of people were really aghast at what Georgia was suggesting that they were going to give to Amazon, especially because it wasn't clear that that was then going, that Georgia would get as much back, right? Forget getting more back, right? Would they even sort of break even for what they were given? And so that's going to be, I think, a real question here, especially because in all honesty, right, there are still a lot of parts of the state, Rutledge being one of them, that are really struggling, uh, particularly over the past two years that we've had. Kevin, are you there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple things. I think that um, it's important to point out that under the state's open records law, these kinds of uh, deals are allowed to be kept from the public until they're finalized. So I'm sure that uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's reporters will get their hands on whatever documents that explain just uh, how good an offer this was. And it, it's rumored to be you know, historically good uh, for Rivian. And then the other thing I would say, if I'm David Perdue, I might say something more like this rather than arguing about the jobs and, and other impacts and say, look, Brian Kemp just happened to be sitting in the governor's chair at this time. And he can't take credit for this because the truth, and I, and I think Tia was getting at this, is 
a lot of times politicians show up at these announcements and ribbon cuttings. They don't have all that much to do with making it happen. These are made, these decisions are made in corporate boardrooms and in places uh, elsewhere that, uh, and, and sometimes politicians get more in the way than anything else. Um, okay, just in terms of economic development, and I think I, I think all of the skepticism, all of the questions that you're raising, will watch to see answered, uh, and how people react to what they learn. Uh, but but Kevin, I think you started with an interesting point. I mean, there's there's certainly no state that wants to uh, uh, avoid creating a future built around. Uh, what the economy, what business is going to look like moving forward. So you, you've got Rivian, the, the um, um, manufacturer of electric vehicles. Uh, Georgia just acquired the, the biggest battery uh, makers for electric vehicles, SK. They're, uh, they're creating, a, they've got a plant over in Commerce coming in. So it, it is important to say that Georgia is looking forward, Kevin, at what the economy is likely to be 5, 10, 15 years in the future. And, and so that deserves, with all the skepticism, uh, to be looked at in, in, a, in a more positive light to some extent, doesn't it, Kevin? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I think um, while there'll be questions about how big the incentives are and what the economic impact is, all that, I mean, if they truly end up employing 8,000 people and then a lot of suppliers crop up around that plant and all the sort of other things that happened around a large automotive assembly plant, as we've seen at the Kia plant, it has impact beyond just the plant. plant. Um, I think you could make a strong argument that in the end it will be, it will be uh, a powerful thing for Georgia's economy, but it won't come without, you know, without some problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show and come back with uh, more on today's Political Rewind. Clark Atlanta University's Tammy Greer, Georgia State University's Amy Steigerwald, Kevin Riley of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Tia Mitchell, Washington reporter for the AJC, with us today. Tia, I saved you for last because I want to talk about a story that you filed uh, for the AJC. Um, you uh, talked to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, uh, the committee, uh, the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, and uh, they basically said to you, Brad Raffensperger's testimony has been crucial in how they are trying to get to the bottom of President Trump's uh, interference with the election and the way in which he be, may have encouraged his supporters to uh, storm the Capitol. Tia? Yes. So, you know, the January 6th committee, the scope of their work isn't just about what happened that day. They're looking to determine what are the factors that led to then-President Trump supporters storming the Capitol. So they're looking a lot at the big lie and the stop the steal 
kind of um, campaign that preceded the insurrection. And that's where Representative Benny Thompson, he's from Mississippi, but he's chairing the committee. I spoke to him this week. It took took me a couple of weeks to finally kind of catch up with him and pin him down to talk to him about (laughs) Raffensperger's testimony. So we heard from Raffensperger, my colleague Greg Bluestein spoke to him that same day, but we we heard now from Thompson who says, you know, Raffensperger stood resolute. He was being pressured, not just, um, you know, we all know that infamous phone call that Trump placed to Raffensperger, but also then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, um, you know, came to Georgia unannounced and asked to review ballots, even though, you know, his request was denied, but the fact that the chief of staff of the White House would just show up when ballots were being counted and start started making demands of election staff. So Thompson said, you know, he thought it was impressive that Raffensperger resisted that pressure, but it was crucial to hear from Raffensperger about his experiences. And the thing I should note is that was behind closed doors. So But eventually there could be, you know, when the committee releases its report, for example, we might get a transcript of what Raffensperger said. Or if the committee decides to have public hearings, um, we could hear more from Raffensperger. And actually, um, GPB Stephen Fowler just reported this morning, I think, that other employees with the Secretary of State's office is also speaking to the January 6th committee. Um, I hadn't seen that yet. Um, uh, thank you for pointing that out, because um, Stephen Fowler's been on top of this story, uh, as as uh, you have over at the AJC. Um, uh, Amy, the uh, January 6th committee is being stonewalled, of course, by, by many in the Trump administration, most recently Mark Meadows, who's they've now voted, as they did with Steve Bannon, to refer him for a criminal investigation by the Department of Justice and and it does feel uh, to an extent that um that that as long as the trump people do this and can try to run out the clock somehow they may escape what uh what democrats would like to see and that's uh, them being held accountable for what happened on january 6th and beyond no i think that's very true i mean we certainly have a lot of information um Mark Meadows sort of is an interesting case because he was cooperating with the committee. um, And then it hit a point where they asked for further uh, phone records and text messages. And that's when he said that he was not going to continue cooperating, which does on some level suggest that there must be information in there that he doesn't feel great about giving out, perhaps because it makes him look worse or, or something like that. It's hard not to sort of come to that uh, supposition, given that he was already cooperating. But I think it's more broadly that, yes, I mean, on some level, this was the argument a lot of people made even during right that second impeachment of now is the time. Let's collect the information. We can do that here. And when that didn't happen, it meant that we pushed it further down the road. Here we are. We now finally have this committee, but it is one which uh, the two Republican members, it is a bipartisan committee, but the two Republican members uh, who are on it have been punished by uh, the Republican caucus. Uh, Liz Cheney had been the number three. She was uh, kicked out. Same thing with uh, Representative Kinzinger. And so there is this real concern that there is now a, that in ways that we would generally hope there would not be 
very partisan responses to whether or not we should find out what occurred on sort of that, to be perfectly blunt, really horrible day. So uh, here's a little bit of Stephen Fowler's uh, exclusive reporting, um, uh, which I'm glad Tia pointed out. I somehow didn't get to see it. Representatives of the U.S. House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection interviewed current and former employees of the Georgia Secretary of State's office Wednesday, yesterday, about former President Donald Trump's extensive attempts to overturn the 2020 election results. According to an official briefed on the conversations, but not authorized to speak publicly, at least two current or former officials for the office sat for hours with representatives of the U.S. House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Tammy, uh, Georgia cannot escape being in the center of national political attention on so many stories, including this one. Correct. And not only this, let's not forget election workers who were harassed um, at their homes um, behind the same type of, uh, uh, behind the lies, right? I, I think that we should move away from mistruth or misinformation because then that allows for nuance that maybe people were unclear about something. So when it comes to um, the lies about um, the election, to have um, you know, federal uh, a federal officer to say that this is the most uh, secure election that we have had in our history, um, and to almost dismiss uh, the experts when it comes to such really is disturbing. Uh, on so many levels, though, Georgia is the center of um, political the political universe, um, and you know, soon to be economic universe uh, when it comes to um, all that is happening within the state. So I think it's. Um, critical for not only our elected officials, but our um, unelected officials um, and leaders in the communities to really be firm on what is true um, and continue to move us forward. Because with all of the, the news that surrounds Georgia, we don't want some of these, these lies to be so big and overshadow the progress that is happening within the state. Kevin? Bill, uh, you know, the one of the most uh, interesting things about all this, of course, as we're talking about, is the role Georgia plays in this whole uh, investigation and the conversation about the big lie. I would argue that Brad Raffensperger and then Ryan Germany, the attorney in the attorney general's office, I'm sorry, the secretary of state's office, um, it, it are two of the biggest characters in this and interesting because they were forced in a way that so many other Republicans were not to stand up. They had that moment of truth and they stood up. I mean, you remember Ryan Germany on that phone call said, that's not accurate, Mr. President. Right. And then uh, Raffensperger did similar things. He's written this book. And it, to me, that is a remarkable thing. But I still keep always come back to this. Even if Trump had won Georgia, he wouldn't have won the election. I mean, that's really the truth. And it, to me, that's what the oddity is about how hard he pressed and what he did. I, I get that they were doing some things in, in other states, but we have two officials at a crucial moment who said these things directly to the president, which is, I'm sure was not an easy thing to do. And they, in the end, the entire House investigation could revolve around what those two people said. 
Um, yeah, so uh, again, uh, we're going to be watching that story very, very uh, closely. Um, let me turn to another issue. Uh, Tia, the, um, the child tax credit, which was part of a, one of the COVID relief packages earlier on in the pandemic and provided uh, so much uh, money for, for uh, families who really, really were struggling to make ends meet. It's now officially expired, I think, right? Wasn't yesterday the final day for it? It's not. Okay, it's sort of expired, but it's not quite official yet. Nevertheless, it does need to be renewed. If it is not yes. renewed, the tax credit will go away. Let me, I want to ask you about where it stands. But before I do, our Riley Bunch at GPB News uh, went out and talked to a number of families who have been getting the tax credit and what it's meant uh, to them to have it. And I want to play sound from just one mother uh, who talked to Riley about how much it's uh, helped her and her family. Our rent is $1,000 a month. Um, so since we have four kids, the the tax credit credit gives us $800 a month. So it was literally paying majority of my rent. And so that was just like, if that hadn't happened when it did, when he broke his hands, I, I would have just dropped to my knees and cried because we've already been through the fire. We already, you know, been evicted for really railroad reasons. And I didn't want to watch my kids suffer anymore. You know, Tia, when I listened to that soundbite, I thought, these issues always get caught up in, uh, in, in this, the political back and forth, you know, the partisanship, uh, too many government uh, bailouts. No government has to be able to help its people. They're, they're kind of abstract and uh, don't really get down to the bottom line. Here's, here's an example of what it really means when this money goes out to a family. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be very, I think it's going to be a big effect when all the millions of families that have been getting the checks on the 15th of each month for the last six months. So to your point, yesterday, December 15th was the last check unless Congress acts in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, January 15th will be the first missed check and millions of people, if anyone knows what it's like to live check to check, what happens when you miss a check? And that's what we're looking at on January 15th. I think it's going to be widespread, and I think it's going to be devastating. All the um, There have been a lot of uh, Democratic-leaning groups, progressive groups, groups that work with families that have gone out of their way to talk about how these checks have lifted millions of families out of poverty just by the fact that they're getting an extra um, you know, it's roughly two fifty to three hundred dollars a month per child. So those families were lifted out of poverty by that check. Once those checks stop coming on January fifteenth, that means poverty goes back up in America, in Georgia. And of course, Amy, uh, uh, President Biden wants to see these uh, tax credits uh, become permanent, not just uh, temporary during a pandemic. And he's uh, struggling to get uh, everybody on board with that. 
Yes, I think some of the issue that we have is sort of this question of, as you said, sort of in the abstract, oh, it's giving bailouts. Why aren't people working? Where are they coming? And not sort of seeing the reality that on the one hand, yes, the stock market is doing incredibly well. And so for those at the upper echelons of the income brackets, right, life is quite good right now. Lots of companies are actually recording record prices. On the flip side of it, though, Hundreds, if not thousands, of small businesses have gone out of work. There is a crisis of women having to drop out of the workforce, uh, particularly that have young children because there is no other option to care for them. Uh, the estimates are that there's something about 3.5 million women in the last 18 months have lost their jobs and are unclear when they'll be able to return back to them. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of family and millions of children that are struggling in poverty. And so we have this real disconnect between kind of a fight over the the funds and who's actually being helped and, and what that means. Um, and it's hard not to also see it in the same context as when we're still also having these fights about uh, maternal health care, about whether or not abortion should be allowed, and the fact that then taking care of the children afterwards um, is particularly difficult. And so we've got real struggles, I think, that are going on there. And there are very real people that are being harmed for this in ways that I think get lost when we talk about sort of the overall economics. All right. Amy Steigerwald gets a last word in this segment of the show. I've got to take our final break. We'll be back with more in just a minute. I want to do a quick update on a story that we spent a considerable, a considerable amount of time talking about on the show the other day. You may recall our conversation. Uh, there was a task force or a, a, you know, some sort of group, a committee, that had uh, been looking at the question of what to do about a restaurant, a former restaurant called Aunt Fanny's Cabin, in Smyrna. It has been out of business for many years now, but the structure itself still stands. It was a restaurant that was an attempt to recreate the antebellum South um, and was allegedly a former slave cabin owned, uh, or not owned by, but occupied uh, by a uh, woman who gave down the recipes that the restaurant served to its customers. Uh, young black boys, children, uh, wore menus on wooden uh, boards around their necks. It, I went there once when I first came to Georgia because I was told I had to see it. It was a horrific experience. Uh, well, they were talking about how to preserve it in Smyrna as a historical artifact. Um, in fact, what they finally decided to do is tear it to the ground and get rid of it, which you know, strikes me as a victory for uh, people who would like to see remnants of the Old South go as far away as possible. Kevin, I thought the AJC did a really good job reporting on that story, by the way. Uh, thank you, Bill. Yeah, I thought our Matt Bruce um, not only captured the controversy, but also just the history and, um, again, another remnant of, of that, that period in our <clears throat> state, uh, which and, and those things keep coming up, and I think we'll continue to wrestle with them. But uh, Smyrna decided that they were just going to tear it down. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people will be glad to hear that. All right. Um, 
So that's that with our update. Uh, let me move on. Um, Amy, uh, the, uh, there, there are still questions, despite the fact that David Perdue is running against Brian Kemp, as to whether Sonny Perdue, his cousin, is the lead, leading candidate for chancellor of the university system of Georgia. Um, and, and there are those who believe that, despite now David Perdue's uh, uh, campaign against Brian Kemp, that Sonny Perdue may still be the top candidate uh, for that job. And that raises serious questions because uh, uh, there are accreditation organizations have said if that happens, if a politician with no background in education gets the job, it could lead to a review of whether the university system of Georgia should continue getting accreditation. Yes. And so... Uh, I'm obviously not speaking for the USG or Georgia State, but as a faculty member who just went to graduation and is very proud of all of my students, there is most decidedly a concern when the Sachs Accreditation Board releases a public notice suggesting that the appointment of someone without higher education experience could lead us to lose our accreditation. I should note the last time that happened was when uh, Talmadge was put in as uh, during the Talmadge reign, uh, again, as sort of a backlash of segregation because someone was put in who did not have higher education experience. And so the University of Georgia system lost its accreditation for a period of time, which had catastrophic effects uh, on higher education in the state. Um, we have a lot of really impressive things. So that is concerning. Uh, on the other political side, the reality is, is leaving aside sort of who Sonny Perdue's cousin may or may not be and who may be running against him. Uh, Sonny Perdue is who first uh, appointed Brian Kemp uh, to a statewide position, backed his uh, very sort of publicly packed his um, race for or his run for the governorship in 2018 and very notably uh, was able to convince uh, then President Trump that he should back. Uh, Brian Kemp's race or, or run uh, candidacy for the governorship. And so there are a number of ways in which uh, he certainly has some indebtedness, I think, to Sonny Perdue. And this would be obviously a fairly coveted position for someone uh, to be given at the end of to kind of cap off their career. And so I think that there is going to be a lot that it, that is weighed there to some degree of, you know, how much to, to push this forward and, and what are the what, what does that mean sort of going forward? Um, I'm also not sure what that does to perhaps blunt uh, the primary challenge he's facing. Yeah. Uh, Tammy, just to, to uh, drill down a little bit on what Amy said, it was uh, Governor Sonny Perdue who appointed uh, Brian Kemp Secretary of State when the position became open. He, of course, subsequently ran for it, won the job, and was serving as Secretary of State when he ran against Stacey Abrams in 2018, which caused a great deal of controversy, certainly among uh, Democrats during uh, that campaign. And as Amy points out, uh, it was Sonny Perdue and his cousin David Perdue who went to Donald Trump and said, you want to get behind this guy Brian Kemp's run for governor. And that assured Brian Kemp. He shot up in the polls against Casey Cagle and any other contender for the Republican nomination. Uh, Tammy? Yeah, so it's very interesting to see how Brian Kemp is almost trying to play both ends against each other. So on the mm -hmm. one hand, looking as a moderate Republican um, by standing up um, against, um, you know, pressure 
to um, to do things illegal things when it comes to the election in 2020. At the same time, you know, uh, being there for ribbon cutting, you know, bringing jobs to Georgia, um, being firm on this stance, yet then reverts back um, to still try to get some of those folks who are maybe leery uh, because of the election. Uh, yet, um, if we go ahead and get Sonny Purdue in, who um, you know, was what was he, Secretary of Agriculture? Um, then mm-hmm. that allows for those individuals in certain spaces within Georgia who may lean toward David Perdue um, in the primary may come back home to to Brian Kemp. So it's very fascinating. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, that, all of you. Uh, Tia, let me turn to a final uh, subject we have a little time for. Uh, the FAA continues to delay its decision on whether Camden County should be able to go ahead with building Spaceport Camden, which uh, many down there oppose. Others think it's a great economic development, a boon uh, for the county. And they put it off again. We were expecting a decision yesterday. Now Monday is as soon as it will come. But uh, there's already a group down there that's collecting signatures saying we've got to put this on a ballot for a special election. We shouldn't let this happen. It will destroy the pristine nature of the the area around it. Yeah, and my colleague Maya um, Prave, who has been the one going, she even went down to Little Cumberland Island a couple of months ago and talked to people down there, and she's been keeping up with it. I think it's interesting that the FAA keeps delaying its decision. And to me, that's the clearest indication that there's a lot of pressure from both sides. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, space and and. I think Camden County wants, well, we see the press releases coming from the government down there, and they think it'll be an economic boon and open up all these opportunities. But again, we hear from people who say, we don't necessarily want that type of activity. You know, look down what happens when you when you have a spaceport. It can bring a lot, similar to what we were saying about Rivian. You know, it yeah, might exactly. be good. But, you know, it'll change the fabric of those areas forever in ways foreseen and unforeseen. So I think we're all staying tuned. Kevin, last word from you before we have to go. Bill, I just have to say this. If they put a spaceport in Camden, it makes us closer to our dream of doing an episode of Political Rewind from Space. Kevin Riley, you know, we needed to end the show on a light note. Thank you for doing that. Thank you, Kevin, for being here. Amy Steigerwald, Tammy Greer, Tia Mitchell. A terrific conversation today. Uh, we're completely out of time for Political Rewind. We're back again with another show tomorrow. My thanks to my great team, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmistaz, Uh, Jesse Neiswanger for their work today and every day on the show. Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. I I assume you've already gotten your vaccinations, but now get that booster. Only 25% of Georgians have had the booster, and now is as good a time as any to do it. See you all tomorrow. 